welcome to WNHH Radio's Dateline New Haven. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. Mike Handler is looking to make New Haven and Connecticut tick. He's one of the people running for governor in 2018, seeking the Republican nomination. And a special thanks to Yale New Haven Hospital for providing support for today's program. Welcome to the studio, Mike Handler. It's a real pleasure to meet you. Good morning, Paul. Thanks for having me. You're one busy guy, I got to say. So you're the chief financial officer of Stanford. You have young children. You got a family. In I New do. Canaan, and you're still a um, volunteer running the emergency medical team in, uh, in New Canaan. So in New Canaan, I uh, have been an EMT for 17 years. I'm currently the emergency management director for the town of New Canaan. Volunteer. Volunteer. So day you're doing the finances in Stanford, night you're doing EMT. In between all that, you're running for governor and you're dead. I wish I could break it up uh, in segments of the day, but pretty much all three collide during the day. Do you have a hard time remembering what you're doing? Like you're supposed to be checking someone's blood pressure or doing the kids' homework or telling how you got to balance the budget? Fortunately, I do not. <laughs> how do you do that? What's your secret to multitasking? So it's having a good team of people around you that can help. Uh, it's also staying focused on primary issues. And um, so far, so good. You know, Stanford's a, a full-time job. It's a 24-hour-a-day job. Um, I've got a great team. And we've made tremendous progress in the city. I'm very proud of the accomplishments we've made over the last couple of years. And uh, New Canaan is actually a, a different animal altogether. Um, I love working with our police and fire chiefs and our EMS chiefs in the town. Um, I think we provide um, some of the highest level of care of any of the communities that I worked in. I remember I've worked in EMS in uh, quite a few places, New Jersey. I've trained in Atlanta, uh, New York City, and then Connecticut as well. Okay, I hope you don't take this as an insult, but you remind me of when I was covering the 2010 and 2006 races, there was one candidate who ran partly on his experience doing nuts and bolts work with people in both parties running a city of Stanford, and that was Dan Malloy. Are you the Dan Malloy candidate in this race? I'm glad you bring it up. Um, Listen, uh, for all things that Dan has accomplished, um, I think we differ in a couple of very important ways. Um, I'm a numbers guy. I'm not a career politician or elected official. I'm a a realist. Which is a cheap thing to say when you're running for office because everyone runs as I'm not a career politician because people have an understanding um, frustration with how politicians have worked. But it does denigrate the job of being an elected official in governing. So, Paul, I'm not for the least bit, you know, denigrating <laughs> the role of a politician. Phrase, like, I'm not a career politician. Half the people who have come in the studio running for governor have said that, and they're going to be one when they're elected. But here's the wins. difference. Here's the difference. It's not about whether you're a politician or not. It's what your experience is. And in the city of Stanford, I've got the actual, on-the-ground, hands-on experience of having turned the city around financially. And it's interesting. You've worked for both a Democrat and a Republican. That's you right. You were hired under a Republican mayor to become the uh, chief financial officer in, and then I think, 2012, if I got it right, and then when a Democrat guy like there, he left, kept you on, and you've added to your portfolio the title of Chief Administrative Officer, correct? Well, in the city of Stanford, the, the title is Director of Administration, okay. and that, that encompasses many things. Um, in many ways, it's the Chief Financial Officer, Chief Operating Officer, Chief Administrative Officer, also the Treasurer of the city. Oh, wow. And that's a role that I've had since 2012. That role has not changed. The Treasurer means making sure the checks get signed and there's enough no, money in the accounts? Treasurer is the authorized, the duly authorized representative of the city that has the ability to issue debt. That okay. So you got a lot of hats there you're wearing. I do, and again, I've got a pretty strong team behind me helping me manage. So you worked with a Democratic mayor in Stanford and a Republican mayor in Stanford, and you say on your website that you came in at a time when the city was a fiscal mess. Does that mean Dan Malloy left Stanford a mess, or was it the recession? I would say the city of Stanford on the surface looked good. Um, one you got all those big corporations going there, like f- feeding you money. So there were cranes on the ground, there was construction, there was development. <laughs> 
but below the surface, a financial mess. And I'll be honest with you, I had low expectations of what I would find. Um, it was pretty bad. Pretty much every trick you could play to rob tomorrow to make today feel better, we had done. And that's sort of like what John Rowland did in the state when he struck that deal with the state workers where you don't have any big costs showing your bus books for a bunch of years for pensions, let's say, and healthcare costs, but then it balloons five, ten years down the road. That's right. So you're writing IOUs today that we're going to have our children or grandchildren pay down the road, but also on our balance sheet. We were restructuring debt at an alarming rate, and it felt great in the current moment. Does it ever make sense to restructure debt? We talk about that a lot in New Haven. So a lot of times, first we have the debate, do you use one-time revenues? And that's kind of frowned upon to fill a budget gap one year by like selling off assets that you won't be able to replicate the year after. You're not getting your house in order. Other times, whenever they restructure debt, the people who are in always say, because let's say interest rates are low, we're going to spend less overall if we restructure our debt. What's often not said, and reporters like myself are way too ignorant and unfamiliar with economics to be able to follow this, then often it turns out there's a balloon payment down the road. Is there ever, is it ever kosher to restructure municipal debt to get out of a hole, or is it always kicking the can down the road? Because that's an issue in New Haven. Paul, this is an important question I hope we can spend some time talking about. Um, one of the first things I did in the city of Stanford when I got there, and I was working with then uh, David Martin, who's currently the mayor, he was on the board of finance at the time, and David and I worked together on financial policy changes that would make it impossible for any future administrations to do what had been done to the city of Stanford for the prior 14 years. And I'll talk, tell you what we're talking about. Um, there's certain games that uh, politicians um, can play with a balance sheet that, again, robs the future in favor of today. And one is you know, bond premiums. So you can issue debt um, today at uh, whatever rate you want to set, and you can put high coupons in the out years, and those bond buyers will pay you a premium for those bonds today. Does that mean the interest is going to change a lot later? Now it's like having a, a balloon mortgage as opposed to a, a fixed mortgage. So I'll tell you what it does. If you sell $20 million <clears> worth <throat> of bonds, and they pay you $23 million for those bonds, you're taking that $3 million in as revenue in this current year. It feels great in the current operating budget. But the reason they're paying you the extra $3 million today is because you've got in a 3% rate environment, you've got 8% coupons in the out years. So you're leaving future taxpayers on the hook to pay for those bills down the road. That's only one trick. In the city of Stanford, you can't do that anymore. When you take in bond premiums, that goes into an account that's called capital non-recurring, only to be used for long-term asset purchases. I think in Hartford, they might call that a lockbox. Okay, so hold on. Not entirely, <laughs> but yes. And, and, and Hartford, if you look at the footnotes on the financials in Hartford, um, the state is taking in bond premiums and reducing debt service payments in the current year by doing that. And that's a game we should not be playing. A different way of playing games. Um, we talk is about, it okay to restructure debt ever so, if, if interest rates change? What's the right way to do it? Let's get to it. So in the city of Stanford, as a result of policies that David, Martin, and I worked on together, um, you can only restructure debt for the remaining <clears> life <throat> of the bonds, and you can only take the savings evenly over the life of those bonds. So if I'm going to save $2 million over 10 years, I can only take that savings proportionally $200,000 each year for every, life of, every year of the life of the bonds that remains. That's not what's happening. That's not what's happening here in New Haven. That's not what's happening in our bigger cities. And I'll tell you, you know, it's really a function of the state's failure to get its house in order that's forcing, not only allowing, it's encouraging towns now, and cities to make really poor decisions. I'm, so I asking, think, I'm asking you this again from an ignorant basis because I didn't go to business school like yourself. I haven't managed a, a local government. What about the argument you talked about? And I like this. Obviously, any fiscal conservative would say it's great that you can't have it go beyond the amount of time you're going to pay anyway and that you can't claim all the benefits in one year to fill a budget hole and then leave it to the future to pay. you got to spread the benefits. 
what's wrong if you had a 20-year note and there are 15 years left? You make it 20 years again, but you're not increasing the cost year to year. I'll tell you what's, what's wrong, wrong with that. So think about your home, right? <clears throat> you buy a, a brand new home, 30-year fixed rate mortgage, and every 10 years, you restructure that mortgage for another 30 Which years. Which I would hate to do because I don't want to be a debt for 30 years, but theoretically, but if, if you, do it, you hit some hard times. And every 10 years, you restructure that, that mortgage for another 30 years, two things happen. You never own your home. The bank always owns right. it. And the home costs you a fortune at the end of it. Right, you've paid so, a lot more in debt over time. Right. So let's take it back to the municipal level for a second, okay? So when you struck, when you, and this is important to talk about because the legislature just passed House 7312. The bill that passed 7312 um, that went into effect July 1st allows you to restructure debt for an additional 30 years. So let's talk about, you know, city of New Haven as an example. You can buy a fire truck for your city uh, and spend a million dollars on a ladder truck for your fire department. You can issue a million-dollar, 20-year bond for that fire truck. And 10 years into that, you can now restructure that debt for another 30 years. So essentially, it's taking you 40 years to pay off that fire truck. But how long is the fire truck lasting? 15 years? And actually, in New Haven, they've moved to more lease purchase or even just rental agreements. They've actually found that renting, which usually is a bad idea rather than owning something because these vehicles run out so quickly. It's not 30 years. They're often not great after three years, right? Or four, they're actually finding that to lease purchase or even just lease well, is a better idea. Let me tell you, I'm a, a very simple person when it comes to finance. Um, <laughs> the more complicated we make it, whether it be leasing or renting, we are adding costs that are hidden. It may not be in the current fiscal year that we're in, we're trying to structure, but we're adding costs over the long I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm wondering whether there is a way to do it that isn't hiding it. One way you talked about was keep not adding to the number of years you owe. Another way was spread out the benefits, you're not taking all of it the first year. But again, if you owned your home for 10 years, sometimes it does make sense to refinance, right? I personally am with you. I don't like refinancing because I do want to own it eventually. And I feel like ownership is just, we have a religion, you know, the economic religion that says it's better to own the asset. But if you're, if you're getting a cheaper interest rate for the 30 years, are you really saddling future generations so with I'm not, I'm not opposed to restructuring debt and re refunding debt, which is what we call it in the municipal world. Um, I think when rates are lower, you haven't, opportunity to save money i'm just saying that how you structure it's important and it takes mm -hmm. discipline to structure the savings over the remaining life of the bonds and not extending the maturity ones i'm dead set against extending maturities of the bonds and i'm dead set against um, arbitrarily taking savings in one particular year because it feels good for the moment All and right. that's something that we cannot do any longer in the city of stanford but we can do is remind people that you listen to Dateline New Haven and WNHH Radio, your home for community radio at 103.5 FM live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. We're getting in the weeds with a candidate for governor, Republican candidate Mike Handler, a guy who's worked with Democrats and Republicans. We're going to speak about that a little later and uh, here on w in, in New Haven Independent. Looking, getting out of the weeds for a second. Why do you want to be the governor? So Finances I, are a mess. Everyone's mean to each other. I mean, you're kind of hamstrung with divided politics up there. Unless you think you're Superman, why would you want to be governor? If you look at my history, Paul, I've spent 14 years in investment management as a senior executive um, where I learned skills um, such as identifying um, assets that are underperforming, making them perform better, um, risk allocation of capital, making sure that we allocate our capital in places where we get a return. Um, I've learned how to improve balance sheets, make companies more profitable. Um, I've also learned how to identify companies that aren't doing so well. Um, and then I go into the public sector and you know, I am a crisis manager. I'm the person that comes in when most people would say, why would you want to do this job? And having had the last five and a half years in the city of Stanford, I'm probably the only candidate that has both the public sector and private sector expertise and success that can solve this problem for the state. Okay, and so now you can answer this question firsthand the way most people can't. 
what is different? A lot of business people run and say, well, I can run government better. I've run a bigger budget. I've like fired people. I've ripped up, I've declared bankruptcy like Donald Trump's, you know, <laughs> twice a week. What is different and needs to be different about public management? What other public needs and goods are you responsible for than if you're just some kind of faceless asset manager? So let's, let's talk about the nuance between public and private sectors for a second. Um, the role of government is not to create jobs. It's to create an environment where the private sector can create jobs. Um, the role of government is to provide services for its citizenry that they can't do for themselves um, in the most efficient manner possible. So uh, anybody who thinks you can run government like a business is going to be in for a rude awakening. Um, you cannot, for the very simple function that you can't reward good behavior and punish bad behavior like you can in the private sector. Think for a second what it's like to run an investment management firm where you can't reward your good portfolio managers and punish your bad portfolio managers. That's not a firm you want to be And of course, in. that's the business perspective on it. The public perspective is... In business, you can get away with treating people like dirt and stealing money. And in the public good, we have other needs like making sure that you have to answer more to unions, let's say. So again, the purpose of government is to provide those services to the public that they cannot provide for themselves. Um, if you want to have trash picked up at your house, um, you very easily could go to a private sector trash hauler and have your trash picked up weekly or bi-weekly if that's what you want to do. Can't we and, add that there are certain services the public, private sector can't make enough profit on? So the public sector takes over, defense, um, public safety, or in some cases, you know, there's a real debate about how doing low-income housing. Do you believe that the private sector always does things more efficiently or better? Are there certain jobs that the public sector takes on and because you can't make a profit on it, you can't make the decisions the same way you make them in the private sector? I would not brush them all with the same broad stroke. I, see, I think certain things, uh, we have a obligation to have the private sector who can do a much better job take over. I think there's certain areas where, and I disagree with the, the, the premise that um, you can have private sector handle you know, public safety, for instance. Um, there's a reason why it's a government function is because we're not in this to turn a profit in public safety. We're in this for, for one And another question is, and we're still learning this, is when does the profit motive produce a better outcome? So the argument, a lot of people say we should privatize the police if it produced a better outcome, but when we have certain public goods, we define that outcome more broadly. So treating people fairly, constitutional rights, all that, that's harder to factor Abs in. Absolutely, and that's why public safety is probably not the right example to look and to yet, privatize. And yet we're trying to figure out in New Haven why it is. So a lot of times when we've privatized public housing um, services, it's led to corruption and more waste, the Section 8 program, rental subsidies. On the other hand, New Haven had these really run-down, badly-run housing developments. When we built them, they remained publicly owned, but we outsourced the management and those look like the Truman Show. I mean, you, you wouldn't, in New Canaan, you actually wouldn't mind having some of those developments in your town. And it, I've asked a lot of people who really believe in public sector, why is that happening to New Haven? We've never come up with the answer about why certain services end up better run, contracted out. In other cases, contracting out is just passing off the tough decisions. So let's talk for a second about, um, and housing is a good example, but in the city of Stamper, we had a very real example. The city of Stamper is one of three communities where the municipality owned a skilled nursing facility. Right? And, you know, think about it, the, the, the role of a public government. The Smith House. Probably shouldn't be in the Smith House business. The only other two municipalities in the whole Northeast were Greenwich and Nantucket. And Stanford's neither Greenwich nor is it Nantucket. Um, the city of Stanford operating this nursing home for over 55 years. We were losing $6.5 million a year. 
But we always hear about these scans of nursing homes where the profit motive leads the operators to skimp on care and people are warehoused and have horrible final years. So let's, well, let's talk about the... Yeah, it's up to regulation. Let's talk about the outcome. Okay, let's talk about the outcome we had in Stanford. So we had a nursing home costing us over $5 million a year. Um, we had a 128-bed facility that had 90 Medicaid residents in the home. And we had valued employees that were there for a long time. Um, but we were losing our, our shirt operating the nursing home. And we weren't investing in the business. Uh, we were able, uh, in the last couple of years, to privatize the nursing home with three main you know, criteria in mind. We had to keep it a nursing home forever, which we did. We had to keep it a home for our, our 90 Medicaid residents for as long as they wanted to be there, which we did. And the new operator had to offer full-time employment to all of our employees, which they did. And for how long? For as long as they both collectively agreed to work. And, and did you spread the benefits from the sale collectively over a lot of years for the term of the contract, or did you take it as a one-time revenue? There, the there's no budget? one-time gain. So, you didn't sell the business to the private operator? No, there was no sale. So we actually turned over the operations to an outside... Um, Who private, owns it? Center Management Group owns and operates it. Um, they are a reputable um, nursing home operator. They own many homes throughout the States. Um, and today, if you were to visit the nursing home, you'd see... Our 90 residents, among 128 residents in the home, with a wait list to get in, have been put two and a half, three million dollars into the home. It's actually thriving, and our so employees are was, still there. Why was the private sector able to run it better? So let's talk about it. So um, we were losing. You want to ask the question: Why are we losing over five million dollars a year? Um, Labor we, costs, right? Right. So we were spending over eight hundred dollars per patient day uh, bed per day, and we were receiving four hundred fifty dollars per patient bed per day in terms of reimbursement from Medicaid. Um, and that's not a business model you can make up in volume. So uh, for us... <laughs> that's that old joke. For, for, You're losing $10 per piece, just make it up in volume. That's right. So for us, um, it was about, you know, again, and these, I want to talk about labor for a second because this was unfair to our employees because we were not going to be able to operate this nursing home indefinitely, losing five and a half, six million dollars every At that year. trajectory, they won't have the jobs anyway. That's right. And, yeah. and it was very real. And for me, it was about educating the employees about what the outcome would look like if we close this nursing home. Yes, yeah. we lose a, a room for a, a resident, 90 of them that need that home to stay open, but we also lose 170 valuable jobs. So the jobs. dilemma often in negotiating with unions, larger unions, is whether they decide to look out for the next few years for the current workers or the long-term viability, where they share in the feeling of having a stake in the That's business right. viability. That's right. And in, in this case, Paul, these were our hardest working employees. They were our lowest wage earners, uh, you know, in total dollars earned in the state. And they're in, in the city. They're doing God's work. They're are watching. Are they still unionized in the new plan? They are. And they're earning the same amount of money? Salaries are the same. Benefits have changed. They're more res closely resemble the private sector benefits that our employees should be earning. So Mike Handler, candidate for governor, that's one point you make in your um, website. You say that you would like to see benefits in the public sector more resemble those in the private sector. We should have 401ks instead of defined benefit plans. Why is that? There is a whole, we had a whole generation in our, a couple generations in our country that believe the public sector should lead the way to safeguard a retirement so that you have, you know what you're going to get rather than being at the whims of the market. So for one, the data is in now, and it's not new to today. This has been going on for the last 25-plus years. Um, paying out you know, benefits that total 50 to 60% of your total compensation is unsustainable. Um, for me in the city of Stanford, negotiating contracts with labor was really about educating employees as to what the word unsustainable means. And you hit it on it a minute ago. It's about whether or not those jobs will be there or those benefits will be there when they need them the most. 
I don't think we're being fair to our employees right now. So your argument is that these generous benefits really aren't generous in the long term because they're unsustainable. They're, they're written IOUs that we all know today but will not be there. are other ways of fixing it that rather than putting retirees to the whims of the market, to fix the structural reasons those benefits are so high, for instance, um, health care. Why don't we uh, cut down on the profit margin? Why do we even need a private insurance industry with, with their whole business model is to get as much money as they can from us to give us the fewest benefits? So I'm not suggesting there's a one solution fix here. I mm-hmm. think um, we're going to have to do both. If you look at our state budget, uh, over a third of our budget are these fixed structural costs, pensions and OPEB retiree health care benefits and debt service. Um, we as a state, we know what happens if we do nothing here. Uh, we're all feeling it. I'm traveling the state every day talking to people, and there's a palpable fear of what happens in and our it's state. it's not just in Connecticut. I mean, these benefits are coming, the bill's coming due in a lot of states. That's right. are facing crisis, and we do need a new generation of leadership that can cross party lines. That's and right. And understand where both sides are coming from. You're making the argument that in Stanford you did that micro level at a city. Now you want to do it at a state. How do you get buy-in from unions? It's a much bigger picture at the state they have a long-term contract now that goes past this decade and well into the next. How are you going to get them to give up what they have now? I mean, they're not going to say those, those that consortium unions, CBAC is not going to say, oh, great, Governor Handler, new governor, we're willing to now go to 401ks and give up everything we negotiated last term. So if you back up a couple of years, I think you would have said the same thing to me sitting in this chair about the city of Stanford. Um, so unfortunately, um, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I've got the confidence to know that I can do this because I've just done it. And you're not going to do it with a hammer. You're not going to do it in arbitration or in court. You're going to mm. do this negotiating. Mm. Um, so there are really three tools we have to negotiate um, and to make this wholesale changes we need to make to make our benefits uh, more fair for everybody. I represent Connecticut, not just unions and not just labor, but I think it's fair for everybody, including labor. I think we're going to have to um, pursue all three at once. Um, I think there's certainly going to be an avenue to um, legislatively change the way uh, Connecticut collectively bargains for benefits. Um, and if we make that change, we'll look like the other 45 states in the union that actually do legislate their benefits. And that's something that we should be starting today, not waiting for me to, to, to win in 2018. You're talking about the Rhode Island Democratic governor in Rhode Island did that. Gina Raimondo, that's right. So the second thing we need to do is there's also a legal challenge to the state's ability to pay. Um, I think the evidence is pretty clear that providing an unsustainable or an unpredictable and an uncom- non-competitive taxing structure is driving revenue out of our state. Does that go to federal court or state court? Uh, it'll probably be in state court to begin with. So you're not going to get a Trump judge to go make the case that you can rip up this agreement because it's not sustainable. So the impact of what Donald Trump is going to have on this is, is unknown at this point, but there's a, a ruling coming out in the U.S. Supreme Court um, that we're expecting to have sometime in the summer in the Janus case. And I think that's probably the first time where um, we're going to see uh, a potential for a pro-management decision on how unions... So you're going to say the second point is going to give you more leverage in those negotiations. Hey, we're going to have a new standard in this country that if something's unsustainable, just because we've signed an agreement that goes into more than a decade, if it can't be paid for, we can get legal authority to revisit. I think there's certainly two options we should be pursuing, but that is not where I would put all my eggs. So I need to let you get to number three there. Yeah, number three really is is the meat of it. And I think that's where my strengths shine. And that's where we're talking about negotiating um, in good faith, not being the loudest person in the room, not throwing your hands up and kicking your feet. This is about sitting down and talking. In the city of Stanford, um, I didn't make the wholesale changes in the first negotiated contract for the Stanford Police Department by you know hammering them over the head and beating them up. Um, they are hardworking, productive, 
um, successful law enforcement officers who are doing a very tough job and keeping our city very safe. This came, you know, about by me talking at lineups, you know, riding in patrol cars, not in the back seat of the car, but in the front seat of the car with officers at night, where I can understand and appreciate what's important from their perspective in the contract. And I can so, also share so, with them what so, unsustainable so, means. So number three is to convince them to take sustainability into account. That's right. Why would you be able to do that? And Dan Malloy couldn't. He got them to give a billion dollars in concessions, which we found out wasn't really a billion. In 2010, it was probably more like 500, 600 million, correct? Because they so had You would petition. have to ask the governor that question. Um, no, my, no, 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 don't punt on this one. No, Why listen, are you going to be able to do it? And they couldn't. I don't think we tried. I really don't. I think, you really don't think, I, I, really I, think I, he I, sat with them and showed them the numbers? I believe we looked for short-term savings as a Band-Aid fix for one year, and it is even one year, as you pointed out earlier. We're already in the red. Uh, you know, a furlough day? You know, the only thing... Let's talk about this. We, we gave them no wage increases for, for two years, followed by 35 and 3.5%. So they all get made up whole before they get their pensions. If, the only thing sillier than a furlough day is selling your office furniture. But are you really going to get unions to agree to a 401k pension plan? I think they're better off. I, and let me tell you why. Okay? That's not the question I asked you. Yeah, I, I, you really I, the, answer, the answer is yes, and I'll tell you why. If you look at the city of Hartford as an example, if you are a 30-year municipal, 30-year veteran municipal employee of the city of Hartford, and but for the $40 million in the state budget going to Hartford to bail them out for one more year, maybe 10 months at best, what happens if, if Chapter 9 is a real possibility in Hartford? What happens to that employee's pension when they're retiring? Do you have any idea what it's worth? A lot less. A lot less. And that's life-changing. And then he said- Are you going to threaten to go bankrupt? No, there's no bankruptcy option. But here's the thing. It's not threatening. It's educating. It's, it's sharing what we're all facing. The state pension system is no better funded than the city of Harper's pension system is. We're fooling ourselves. And the employees know that. And the, the politicians who've given out these benefits, they knew it when they were doing it. We did it in Stanford. How many people, do you know, how many of your listeners today have free retiree health in the private sector? Do you know anybody? But I wish they did. I wish the answer weren't, were a race to the bottom. Well, we're not in a position where we can afford to do that anymore. We're already seeing people voting but with their feet. Is that a choice we're making by not taxing wealthy people more? So listen, the data is in. You don't need an economist to tell us that the more we raise taxes, the lower revenue is going. So I'm, I'm fairly certain that um, the argument to be made to just tax the wealthy, that argument was you know, five years ago. Maybe we're seeing it today. You're seeing, you know, like it or not, you're seeing wealthy people Take their businesses and walk across the border to other towns. But other when they say states. why they did it, they did never. They like when Aetna left, or especially when GE left. They wanted to be in Boston, where there was more public investment in a tech sector that had the infrastructure to grow their tech business, and they they taxed the wealthy just as high there. Paul, there's two things you need when you're going to buy a house, right? In order to have confidence to buy a house, you need to have job security, and you need to know what your mortgage payments are going to be, right? And since everyone's getting fixed mortgages now. The only variable in that mortgage is your taxes. Right now, you have no predictability of what your tax structure is going to look like. And, and the governor did make that very clear when his, in his first budget proposal, he suggested pushing a third of the unfunded teacher liabilities onto the towns. What does that mean? That means we're looking at 10, 12% tax increases on property, your biggest, your nest egg devalues immediately. That's real for all 169 towns. We all feel it. It doesn't matter if you're in a big and town. And what's interesting sm- about that is when Weicker passed the income tax with the help of left-leaning Democrats in um, 1991, it was the progressive urban folks who were arguing for a higher income tax, income tax. Now that that's topping it out and producing the revenue, the new progressive pitch is to sort of even get rid of the income tax and go to a sales tax, which used to be seen as regressive. Let's back up a second, because I talked about the home example. 
but you got to translate that to what it means for businesses. Businesses, and I've been in the private sector, businesses need predictability. You need to know, you don't plan for one year or one budget cycle or one election cycle. They're planning for the long term and they can't make decisions on where to build their business and where to grow their jobs if they don't have predictability in their tax structure. And right now, we have no predictability. The next governor has got three choices here. One of them is to fix the underlying structural problems our state budget has right now. That's the most important thing we can do. The other two options, no one's going to like. It's either raising taxes at the state level or taking the cowardly way out and forcing the towns to raise taxes at the municipal level. Either one of those two are a death knell for our state. And here's the thing that you need to know. Option number one is fixable. We can fix these structural liabilities. We can do this. I can only say it with this conference, I've just done the exact same thing. I know it can be done. All right. I know that people are listening to Dateline New Haven and WNHH Radio, 103.5 FM, live streamed at newhavenimpin.org. We're talking to Mike Handler, one of the candidates for governor in 2018. He's seeking the Republican nomination. Why are you running as a Republican? You work for a Democrat. You work for... Republican. What makes you a Republican? The easy answer is I am a Republican. Um, I'm a fiscal conservative. Um, I do believe that government uh, should have less of a role in people's lives than more of a role. Um, but the truth of the matter is I, I've, I'm a vote for the best candidate person. I don't think our problems as a state are necessarily partisan. Whom did you vote for for president in 2016? I wrote in a candidate. Who did you vote? Uh, Mike Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg. Okay. So you might be Bloombergian governor. Well, listen, I think... Um, I are, you so- a so- are you a social liberal like Bloomberg? I am a moderate Republican. What does that mean? What, were you on abortion, pro-life, pro-choice? So I have a, as you mentioned at the onset of the discussion, I've got a lovely wife and four daughters at home. Um, and I firmly believe that women, and I trust women to make what decision is right for them. All right, good luck in the primaries. And uh, what about, um, okay, so what, what about, let me give you the lightning round with you here. Sure. Uh, public financing. You're taking public financing. Do you also believe in preserving the system? Do you think we should have public financing? I like the program. I, I think there's something that's important of being able to demonstrate broad support, and I've certainly enjoyed getting out and meeting people. And so you honest, be for killing it? I would not. What about single-payer health insurance? Again, I think uh, government probably needs to stay out of certain areas. This is one of them. Um, I don't think it's worked so well in, in, in Vermont. Vermont, I think, they couldn't afford to do it. What if you did it more of a national level or in a blue state? Listen, I, I think it is probably better served at the national level. Um, I would not pursue it as, at the state level. What is the reason for health insurance companies to exist? Do they provide any value in our system right now? Well, they do in that um, if they're not there, who's, who's going to fill that? Single-payer government that you pay more taxes, pay lower premiums. Yeah, so again, we don't have that system in, in Connecticut. Um, I think it's an expensive system. And we system. can't do it alone. That's right. Sanctuary State, would you start cooperating with detainers, secure communities? So you know, I think there's a failure in our immigration policy, um, and I would work hand-in-hand hand with our federal partners to, to line up our, our sanctuary city policies and make sure that we're in, in congruence. I, I think there's a real um, disservice being done um, in our communities. Uh, I'm for strong borders. I'm for a legal path to citizenship. If you're here committing uh, a crime and your status is, um, and you're not here legally, you'll be on the first plane out of here. What if you're not committing any other crime, but you've committed this civilian offense of being here illegally? So again, we need a path to legal citizenship, and I think we've got to preserve the right for um, people that are here without legal status to both report crimes and witness crimes yeah. and stuff forward. And you must see that because you're on the ground in Stanford. So the argument police departments, including very conservative police chiefs, make is that we have a safer city. If people aren't scared, we're going to turn them in. That's right. Does that mean, and, and people on both sides of the immigration debate, which is why it frustrates me, it's such a polarized debate. It seems like everyone pretty much agrees who just looks at the issue and isn't just running for re-election that you need to fix the federal system to have a coherent system it's, so that it's not left to cities to have to carry out a federal policy. But given that now, would you change Governor Malloy's 
policy of not cooperating on detainers for nonviolent detainees? Here's what we cannot do. And as much as I sympathize with individuals that are here and families getting broken up, we cannot allow individuals to choose which laws they want to follow and which laws they do not. I would not allow my daughters to make those choices. I would not want anyone to make that decision. So it's our imperative to actually line up the federal law with, you know. So you wouldn't have a sanctuary state policy? Well, I, I would work with our federal partners to make sure we're in congruence. So that means that it will be harder for your local police departments to get people to trust them because they know you'll turn them into the feds. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. That's the whole nut of the issue. That's I, the tough decision you I, have to make. No, I, I understand. But listen, if you're here and your only issue is your status, I don't support turning those people in. So you would not cooperate with that? Well, I want to change the law so we don't have to. But you're not going to be able to change the law as the governor of tomorrow with the Republican Congress. Not tomorrow, but that would be my mission. That's where in I would In the work. meantime, you get the call from Jeff Sessions. Hey, Mike, we know some guy who uh, you picked up for shoplifting. Turned out he didn't do it. He's about to leave jail. We want you to turn him over to us. What do you do? Again, I would leave it to our police chiefs and our local communities to okay. make that decision. Okay. Marijuana legalization for recreational use. So this is all framed around a, a pretext of trying to generate revenue for the state. This is not a revenue source for the state. Um, I would want to look at it. I, I generally support things that enhance the IQs of children. Um, but I would, I, I would, I would prefer um, that we find a way to fix our structural problems in our, in our budget on the expense side and not look for new revenue so sources. So you're saying don't have it as a revenue source. What about the pros and cons of the issue of having that criminal justice? Some people see it as a criminal justice issue. Yeah, so I, I, again, having a background in public safety I and I, I've seen it firsthand over the last three decades um, I think we've got some very real problems in, in, our, in our state um, with drugs I'm not suggesting marijuana is one of them um, I do think that um, education cures most social ills I also think that um, putting low-level marijuana uh, recreational users in jail is probably not the right thing to be doing Well, we have already decriminalized that's it. right but but again much like your immigration uh, discussion a minute ago it's the Incon inconsistencies between federal law and state law we've got to work out so yes or no you get a bill they're going to they're going to legalize recreational marijuana do you sign it or no um at this point i would not not sign okay but Tolls. i'd be open to, i'd be open into discussion about you know what the results are in states that have done it and look right, at long -term like what's data. happening with colorado the that's police right. aren't happy they say there are more arrest bad driving other people say it's worked other people's and okay that's right and, and while we're on the topic i mean there's there are more important issues that we've got to address right now like the opiate crisis this is this is a real issue that's affecting every one of us and what I've, would you do so listen, I, I've seen this over the last um, you know, several decades, um, whether it's in the projects in Atlanta or in Harlem in New York or in the toniest streets of, of Connecticut. This is affecting everyone. There's no socioeconomic barriers to it. It's affecting all of us. It's a crisis. Um, and it's a crisis right now. So there's a couple things we have to do. We have to uh, ensure that our doctors are prescribing safe amounts of narcotics. We've got to educate our doctors and also we've got to um, monitor what they're doing and penalize those who aren't following yeah, those, those restrictions. about the education. I think they've been well educated in how much money they make from the companies if they prescribe a okay, lot so, of Okay, so a lot of that is changing. It needs to change further. We also um, need to beef up our treatment centers. We also need to remove the stigma. You know, we can't have people, you know, suffering in silence anymore. We've lost, in the last year, we've lost more American lives than the entire Vietnam War. Yeah, this is really a crisis that really we've got to address sad. right now. The um, Some cities like Ithaca have tried these areas where you legally can shoot up and have them controlled and decide and you get help there like with information and clean needles and when you're ready to go into treatment pathway. I'd be interested in seeing the data. Um, I think one of the issues we've got to address in, in America, not just in Connecticut, but I'd work with our governors, you know, surrounding states. We've got to look at um, treatment options that have pharmacological solutions. 
you can uh, will your way off of certain drugs. You cannot will yourself off of an opiate. Um, and I think a lot of our, 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 our citizens are not getting the treatment they need because of the stigma, also because it's not available. And One we've of got our frustrations in dealing with people who have had addiction, it's so sad, and every family's touched, is until they decide they want to do something about it, I don't know what you can do. You always wonder, when does the person hit bottom, and how do you know when they've hit bottom? That's right. And it, it's, it's a very tough um, problem, but it is an epidemic, and we, it's affecting all of us, including our children. This okay. is... Carried interest loophole, do we t- fill that gap that the Fed leaves behind, that when the wealthiest <laughs> people in your home of Fairfield County and New Canaan are taking home those hedge fund industry and equi- equity uh, firm profits, but they pay half the tax the rest of us do? Yeah, so I, interest. I, I am not opposed to people paying their fair share. I think as it relates to this latest um, GOP tax plan, um, the reason why it's affecting blue states the most is our fault. You know, we have... Because we tax more. That's correct. And there's nothing wrong with red states winning an election and... You know, having that. Well, I'm not. I'm not going that far to make that statement. I'm saying we can control our house. We've got to fix our issues. But what about Carrie's loophole? You, I don't want you to duck this question. No, I'm not. I'm not. I, I'm, Why is it fair that someone in New Canaan, where you live, who's making a, millions of dollars a year in the hedge fund or private equity industry, pays half the income tax we do in New Haven because they have the carried interest loophole? So I'm not suggesting that they shouldn't be paying their fair share. I'm saying we've got to balance it with keeping those businesses in Connecticut, and that's the challenge. So you have to let them rip off the poor and the middle class so oh, that they'll stay here? The way you're the characterizing benefit. it is not quite the fair way to do it. Um, okay, can you do it the fair way? Listen, the, the truth of the matter is, if they these are portable businesses, right? So these businesses can up and leave at a moment's notice to go anywhere. They're not going to be in Connecticut. They will be in Florida. Um, Connecticut is a beautiful state. We've got all the reasons in the world for people to be here. We've got to make it attractive to everybody. I'm not suggesting carried interest has to stay here and we can't tax these businesses you know, appropriately, but we cannot make it so they run out of our state. One successful hedge fund manager leaves our state, that's a $30 million annual tax bill we've got to fill. So you would not support the, the state bills to close the gap? Maybe not quite to the extent that we're talking about, but there, there, there's room to be move, to move here. The, li- the most recent budget uh, raises the minimum for the earned income tax, I mean the maximum for earned income tax increase, so yes. basically we raise taxes in this latest budget on the working poor. I support the earned income tax credit. Would you have? Would you return it to its previous levels before this legislation? Again, I think most of our focus has to be on the expense side of our budget, on the spending side of our budget. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can achieve what I know I can achieve, we'll have a much lower cost of living in our state, um, which will make that deduction less um, valuable. But I, I, I do support the notion of rewarding good behavior, and I think the earned income tax credit is a, a decent program. Mike Handler, in our few minutes here, one of the things I find so interesting about your bio is that after you spend the whole day working on finances in Stanford, at night on a volunteer level, you run the emergency medical program in New Canaan. Is that every night? Are you busy every night going to calls? So uh, let's be clear. I am no longer chief of EMS in New Canaan. That's a job that I gave up in 2010-11. Okay. Um, I am the emergency management director, so I oversee all public safety in you know, in general and training. That's a volunteer government position. And for me, it is. In most places, it's not. Um, but for How many hours a week is that? Um, I don't keep track, but it's, it's, it's a, I, again, I've got tremendous chiefs of the like departments. E- like every night, is it 20 minutes, read the bedtime story to your daughter, and then 20 minutes, meet with people, who the police chief in New Canaan? It, it's in fits and starts. So I have um, regular meetings with our chiefs. Um, we stay in constant contact. Um, I coordinate all of our large-scale training. So we're doing uh, mass casualty active shooter trainings, um, I was just in Manhattan with our police chief um, at the NYPD for an intelligence briefing. Um, we do, you know, I, I stay involved as much as you need to to be able to stay on top of the job. I just job. can't believe all the things you do. 
Well, they say if you want something done, ask somebody who's too busy to do it. So my theory about the position of governor in the United States since 1910 is that it has a completely different job description from what it used to. In addition to dealing with these legacy structural budget problems, you are now a disaster management chief. Ella Grasso was the governor. She had once every the once in every 10-year superstorm. Since Dan Malloy has been governor, almost every year he has had the kind of superstorm. It was the October early storm or Hurricane Sandy or or... Superstorm. Nemo. Yeah, I mean, he's Irene. Had, we, we even keep track of him. That's right. Almost every year now, you have what used to happen every 10 or 20 years, and the governor has the most important role statewide in managing that. Tell me how you see the role and how your background will address that. Well, my background's a natural fit for that. I, mean, I was in charge of New Canaan's uh, restoration and recovery efforts and operational efforts um, during all of those superstorms. I mean, you're right. It does sound like we're getting, you know, it feels to me like we're getting these 100 year storms in, in clusters. Um, and that was from 2010 to 2012. Those are pretty rough couple of years in terms of storms. Um, one of the things we're recognizing is that our electrical infrastructure is really woefully we prepared. Should ground lines or is that just too Under, expensive? Undergrounding is a, a great idea. It is prohibitively so expensive. expensive. Yeah. Yes. So listen, I think we've got to work to find alternate you know, means of, of, of transferring electricity around. Um, I think we've got a, um, you asked the question about how we'd manage differently. I think I could step into that role you know, yesterday, um, given my experience and my background. And again, some of the things that I'm most proud of in New Canaan is not what we've done, but what we haven't done. I haven't spent taxpayer dollars um, over-preparing um, and over-operating during storms. I've done exactly what's been necessary with a very small what about, budget. What about microgeneration? One theory of the future is that because the grid is so vulnerable, right? We're looking at all these hacking scandals, all that. What about moving to a system where clusters, neighbor clusters, have their own generation? Is that prohibitive too, like bearing lines, or is there... So, neighborhoods, um, maybe not. I mean, I can tell you in the city of Stanford, I am chairman of the wastewater treatment plant in the city of Stanford. Um, a turnaround that's been remarkable over the last five years. Um, it is an energy hog, so to say. Um, so, we are looking at alternative means of, of energy um, to power that plant. So, there certainly are needs... Um, and there are technologies available today that we didn't have 20, 30 years ago that we should be pursuing. Climate change, is it real? Um, I believe the scientists, yes. All right. The, and we have uh, an obligation to leave this planet better than we found it. All right. Well, I'm, I'm feeling this day began better than we found it because Mike Handler, candidate for governor, came on and told us why he's running. Tell me about the day you'll never forget as an emerging medical technician, volunteer in New Canaan. Oh, there's a... a that's a tough question. There's, a, there's quite a few. Um, some of the toughest decisions you make and emergency medicine. And one of the reasons why I'm drawn towards it is you're heading into um, someone's worst possible moment and you're making a difference. Um, the toughest decisions we have to make are where there's choices to be made. And I've unfortunately been in the position where you have to make choices over which patients. Tell me day, one decision you made. Well, when you're in a, when you're the first person on scene of a, a major car accident or a major you know, trauma and you've got to decide which of the you know, four patients you're wow. going to go to first and make that decision, knowing that there might be a less than positive outcome for the other patients, that's a tough decision. Tell me the time you made that decision. Uh, I've been doing this since 1987 was my first year in EMT as an EMT. One you'll never forget. Um, accident uh, on Route 123 um, years ago. Um, there was a, a major accident where I was the first one on scene and it was a critical accident with multiple patients. And car accident. Car accident. What time of night? Uh, this was back in 2000, 2001. Um, I want to so say daytime, broad daylight. So you didn't have kids yet? 
Um, you I had young kids. Okay. And listen, anything with children is obviously going to be very traumatic. So what happened when you got the scene? How did you make that decision? Um, your training kicks in. You go to where you can you know, triage and do the best good for the most number of people. So what did you decide then? That so day? you treat critical bleeding first. Um, you maintain C-spine stabiliz stabilization as much as you can. And you wait for those sirens. I'll tell you the toughest. I'll tell you an interesting one. In Mexico, I was on vacation in Mexico. And um, there was a horrific motorcycle accident in Mexico. I was there with a friend of mine um, back in the 90s. And this was on a dirt road in Mexico where there was a traumatic motorcycle accident. Husband and wife on the back of Americans in the back of a motorcycle. And the husband was really hurt. And what was really amazing was what you didn't hear. No sirens. And I realized that here we are in Mexico without sirens. And we've got a treat. So we took a door off the back of a truck that um, was carrying lumber and put the patient on the door and transferred to the hospital on that door. How'd you get the door off? It was a, a pickup truck with a bunch of lumber in the back. We happened to take a door that had a doorknob on it and use that as a backboard. And that's just because Mexico didn't have the same level of care we have here in the States. So now you're on the Connecticut Highway where we're staring at these structural deficits and the state that's going broke and maybe you'll make the same triage decision. Um, I think triage is a very important uh, skill to have, certainly in a state that's on fiscal life support. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much, Mike Handler, for making the trip to New Haven among your four jobs and uh, telling us why you're running for governor in 2018. Thanks for joining us today in Dateline New Haven. A special thanks to Yale New Haven Hospital for providing support for today's program. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. Now we know what it's like to be free. We just got to remember to book our flight. Book your flight with us all day and all night long here at WNHH. New Haven's home for community radio.